0: We cannot assign meaning to anything unless we are able to relate it properly to something else. The Twin Cities. Immediately, your brain processes that and assigns meaning to that phrase because you automatically, without thinking, relate it to other metro areas. Twin Cities has meaning as it relates to Minnesota, which has meaning as it is distinguished from other states, The U.S. to other nations and the nations of this world to planet Earth. And planet Earth has no meaning unless we perceive it in our galaxy. And that galaxy has no meaning unless we perceive that in relation to other galaxies. And on it goes. Let me take it the other direction. If someone asks you, do you have bontingliot? You might say something like, come again? What is bontingliot? That has no meaning to me. I, I don't know what that means. What's going to happen now in the conversation? Bon you don't, do you have bontingliot? I don't know what it is. You gotta give me some more. What, what are you talking about? And the person says to you, well, that's a, it's a beverage. What happens in your brain right at that spot? you all of a sudden begin to understand to some degree what Bantingliad is. It's some sort of beverage because you can compare it now and relate it to other things. And so through investigation you might find out whether it is the milk of an animal or the juice of a fruit or made out of a root or a tea leaf or something of the like or some sort of concoction of ingredients to make this beverage. And you will continue to refine your knowledge by relating that idea that you knew nothing about to something else. For anybody that cares, I just made that word up, all right? It's, <laughs> it's not, uh, and if there's a, you know, a whiskey that shows up by that name or something, I have no knowledge of it at all. Everything to which we assign meaning Everything that we truly understand, we perceive in relationship to something else. Let's go from the small up one more time and take that to its conclusion. We understand the Twin Cities as they relate to other cities, and Minnesota as they relate to other states and those states to the nation, and the nation to other nations, and and those nations to the planet, and the planet to the galaxies, and our galaxy to other galaxies, and where does this end? If it is true that you cannot understand anything apart from relating it to something else, whether people know it or not, Whether or not they admit it, the only reason that anything in this universe has meaning is because it relates to the infinite and omnipresent Creator. Everything derives its ultimate meaning from its relationship to God. This means that the ultimate reference point of meaning for all things is Jesus Christ. Relationship to Jesus is the ultimate point of contact for everything and everyone in this universe. He is the epicenter to which every created thing and to which every event in history is tethered and derives its meaning, either good or evil. Paul said it this way, for from Him and to Him and through Him are all things So if we properly discern reality, we see all of creation, all of history, and our individual lives as oriented to Jesus Christ. I believe these thoughts will serve as helpful grounding to us as we enter today upon what is frankly a very difficult text of Scripture to develop particularly as a sermon. The context, you remember, in Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 1, is that Jesus tells a parable and it deals with money. He teaches from that parable through the middle of verse 8, uh, following at the middle of verse 8, he teaches on financial stewardship down through verse 12, and then at verse 13, he tells us about the proper view of money. We cannot love God and love money too. You remember then at verses 14 and 15, Jesus takes that thought and we see it in contrast with the Pharisees who love money. Now this difference of spirit between Jesus and the Pharisees seems to be at the heart of verses 16, 17, and 18. But let me tell you that these verses seem to be thrown in here haphazardly and do not really... Evidence to us exactly what is there there seems to be some emphasis upon the Pharisees and their different spirit But you'll notice there if you have the NIV Translation you'll have the heading there additional teachings You know what the translation for that is which being interpreted is we have no idea why these verses are here additional teachings Nice headings all throughout the book of Luke no one really knows why these verses are here or how they hang together I read a number of substantial commentaries as I work my way through the book of Luke, but one commentary that I read along with them is a preaching commentary, a pastor, a prominent pastor here in the United States who preached through the book of Luke and put his sermons in order, I put them in books, two-volume series on the book of Luke. And I like to just read that to see what another preacher would do with the text of Scripture. and I was quite excited to see what he would do with this in a preaching format. Two-volume series on Luke. He skips these three verses. I couldn't believe it. Every verse of the book is there, but these three. He just skipped it. I wanted to call him up and say, what's going on here? This isn't fair. For a guy that's preached through the genealogies of Genesis, I can't let loose here. We've gotta go through this. Obviously it's here for a reason and God means for us to understand something. One thing I think we're going to understand after we look at this verses is the mystery of scripture in part. These are hard. Sermonically, I'm telling you and preparing you for this, I don't know what to do with these three verses. And I'm in good standing apparently. They're referred to as an exegetical minefield, as a sermonic nightmare. And some people just skip them. But as they are here for a reason, in this tantalizingly brief section where Jesus' words are not filled out and the connection is not made to what proceeds, what can we draw from it? Let's stop. For a few moments and try to unpack it. And where I started here this morning, I hope will provide something of a ground to us. This is the ground that I stood on. That's a very small piece of earth, I'll tell you. But I'm standing on this piece of ground here to say it seems to me that Jesus is at the center of it all. And an orientation to Jesus Christ is what is key to what his teaching here But we notice first in the first two verses, verses 16 and 17, that Jesus is the initiator of a new age. That seems to be fairly obvious. At verse 16, "...the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it." The law and the prophets and as we have just three verses here, we will land on these phrases for a bit and try to soak out of them any truth that we can find. The Law and the Prophets, verse 16, is a common phrase used to refer to what? It refers to the Old Testament. The Law, Moses, the writer of the first five books of Scripture, and the Prophets covers generically everything else. Not a tight-fitting category, but for uh, the Jews of that time, the Law and the Prophets just referred to the Old Testament. It says then that the Law and the Prophets were proclaimed until John. The NIV text here is cheating. The phrase were proclaimed is not in the original text. It just simply reads the Law and the Prophets until John. And so you have to fill in some sort of verb there, some sort of idea as to what is meant It seems to be, as our translators help us, that the idea is something along the lines that the Old Testament epitomized God's revelation to His people until John. When John the Baptist's ministry begins, something dramatic changes. Up to the point of John the Baptist's ministry as the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah, the Old Testament Scriptures held court with God's people. But with the forerunner of Messiah, everything changed. Since that time, says Jesus here in verse 16, since that time, notice the temporal idea. We're talking chronology here. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. For centuries... God had revealed his will in the Mosaic law, and through the writings of the prophets of Israel. We must stop for a moment and try to consider the grandeur, the majesty, the rich heritage of the Old Testament. Century upon century upon century of writings inspired by God himself In these Scriptures, think of it, the people of Israel are chosen as the people of God out of all the nations on earth. In these Scriptures, God establishes His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their people. The law was given to Moses, and the holy nation of priests is established. The sacrificial worship is instituted with all of its ritual and intrigue. God establishes in the Old Testament the dynasty of King David. And there's Solomon's temple, and there's the filling of that temple with the glory of God and its eventual departure. There are the prophets. There's Elijah and Elisha and the many miracles through them and through other prophets who spoke the word of God through such harsh situations and circumstances, always calling God's people back to the law, to the law, to the law. What a heritage. What a great work of God is the Old Testament Scriptures. Yet despite that noble heritage, the ministry of John the Baptist changed everything. With one foot in the old era, John the Baptist stepped into the new era announcing Jesus as Messiah the one to whom the Old Testament pointed all along. With Jesus, the era of promise gave way to the era of fulfillment. Listen to these words. If you'd like, you may turn. But Acts 28, verse 23. Here, Paul is in a meeting with Jews at Rome. Just listen to what he says. Acts 28, 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. These Jews these leaders and came in even larger numbers than before to the place where he was staying Notice Paul's message from morning till evening So he had a little bit to say From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets so when Jesus arrives on the scene in salvation history that history enters a new era to which the Old Testament economy yielded right of way Jesus had come the good news of the kingdom of God is now preached. This long-awaited Messiah to whom Moses bore witness. The prophets spoke about Him. This Messiah has now arrived. He stands on planet Earth. And John the Baptist announces His coming and the plates of the biblical universe shift. The message of God to his people reflects now this radical new day. Jesus is here. Everything orients toward him. In their zeal to keep Christians from improperly reading the New Testament back into the Gospels, an agenda that I think is worthy, there are some Bible teachers who insist that Jesus' ministry took place in the Old Testament. The Gospels, some would argue, are Old Testament books. I don't think this passage will allow that thinking. John the Baptist starts a new day, a new time, a new era. And he does so because the King has arrived. It is not New Testament era on the other side of the death and resurrection of Christ, this Gospel time, but it is also not Old Testament. There is a new day. The era of promise has given way to the era of fulfillment. We then come upon this phrase, and at this point all makes pretty good sense. Jesus is the central point. He's the orientation point. He is the one to which all of biblical revelation points from the past and points back now from this side of the cross. We then come upon this phrase, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Everyone is forcing his way into the kingdom. Renowned New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall writes concerning this phrase, few sayings in the Gospels are so uncertain in interpretation as this one. My study turned up seven distinct interpretations, six of which are mutually exclusive. In other words, they're saying exactly opposite things. What do you do with that? Part of the problem is that the Greek phrase can be taken very differently. What we have here is a translation, which you have to do, but as you give this translation, the, the uh, translators are tipping their hand as to what they believe. So you say, well, it seems like people are forcing their way into the kingdom, what's so hard about that? It's gotta narrow the meaning down. But the meaning can be the exact opposite. I give you just a couple of examples. Some think it refers to the Pharisees keeping people out of the kingdom while others think it has to do with tax collectors and sinners getting into the kingdom. Those are two completely opposite notions from this one phrase. Some think it is an invitation to enter the kingdom by faith. Others see it as a reference to the self-righteous who are trying to get in by human works and aren't going to get in. So, after some significant investigation of time, I've arrived at the solid conclusion that I have no idea what this phrase means and nor does anybody else, really. And that's good for us. And I guess I'm willing to just leave it there. You can read good people who write many, many pages of text to explain why they believe what they believe. I'm not in the position to say I have the inside track on this interpretation. But what we can know is that salvation history points to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is being announced and proclaimed with Jesus. And whether attacking it, or not getting into it because of human works, or being invited into it, or storming the gates of the kingdom as it were through self-effort, however you would understand that phrase, the point is the kingdom has come with Jesus Christ. It's being announced. It's in their presence. And I think it parallels what Paul will bring out later in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. There was a coming to fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. And so I say, what can we get out of this difficult verse? A phrase here at the end that really is probably beyond us to ever come to a place of knowing precisely what it means I think we can get this and I call for your ears and I call for your attention and I pray for those of you who have been here in this church for some time for those of you that are new I pray particularly for those of you that are young that you will hear this point and hear it well Jesus is the center of the Bible. If that's all we gain today, and if that's in fact for some all that we gain of theology, that's pretty good. Jesus Christ is the epicenter. He's the center, the controlling figure and the controlling essence of all of divine revelation. He is, as the author of Hebrews says, the ultimate revelation of God. As we do our study on Sunday evenings in our evangelistic curriculum, that's what that curriculum will strive to do. Not because that's some kind of unique design on my part in how I'm putting it together, but because I'm simply trying to put it together the way the Bible puts itself together. And the Bible is put together together to highlight and to focus and draw attention in the Old Testament as well as the New upon the person of Jesus Christ. He is the center of revelation. He is the focus of all that God is saying to us. Now what does that mean, practically speaking? Does this mean that the Old Testament is obsolete? Is Jesus a new thing that replaces the old thing? Like an old shirt is thrown out when you buy a new shirt. Perhaps it is that question that leads to the next statement in verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Remember the context. Pharisees, religious leaders... A very different spirit about the will of God and the way and the purposes of the Lord. Here Jesus confirms with unimpeachable evidence that he has not come to replace the law in the sense of discarding it, throwing it in the garbage can. It's no good any longer. That's not what he says. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear. In other words, anything can happen, but the law will not pass. It will not drop out. The least stroke of the pen refers to a little part of a Hebrew letter. We might liken it to what's the difference in your mind in lowercase letters between an F and a T just that little curl on the F, right? It's both straight line down and across, but the F has a little curl on the top. That's analogous to what Jesus is saying here. That little curl on the top of the F will not pass out of the law. It will not drop. It will not fail. It will not be set aside. The law here refers, I think, to the entire Old Testament, but particularly to the Mosaic law, and all that God required of His people, including the sacrifices, and the festivals, and the uncleanliness laws, and the ritual purification laws, as well as the moral laws, the whole thing, nothing will drop, nothing will fail of the law. The law is not discarded like an old shirt. Rather, it is what? It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It comes to its ultimate point of reference in the way that Jesus lived. Those of you who are going through the excruciating task of reading through the book of Leviticus on Wednesday nights, take heart. That's a tough thing. And I applaud Pastor Pratt for taking you through that and saying all scripture matters, we're gonna read through the skin rash laws. That's tough going, isn't it? Don't ever forget as you're reading through the book of Leviticus that it is all pointing to Jesus Christ. Now not in goofy weird ways, trying to read what's, you know, where's Jesus in the red skin opposed to the white skin. Not in that kind of sense. But in the sense that all that God is saying in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment, finds its fullness in the way that Jesus Christ lived His life. He fulfilled the very essence of why God gives skin laws and mold laws for your house. We're more Old Testament than we thought we were, aren't we? All this mold stuff going on in houses, but why does he give them all these mold things? It's all fulfilled in the way Jesus lived, which was epitomized in what? To give a simple phrase. He fulfilled the law by loving God with all his heart and his neighbor as himself. That fulfilled it all. That brought it all to culmination That was its heart and its essence and all that God was saying to us in the Old Testament. I believe that we will read and study and know the Old Testament through eternity. I don't know that I'm right about that, but I believe I am. We're not gonna leave that down here on earth and just study the New Testament. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he lived. God's law revealed into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament will stand forever, but it will be f- seen as fulfilled in the way that Jesus lived and who he was. Now let's think on the Pharisees as they're hearing this. Do they like that or don't they? It's kind of hard to know if they like that idea or not. But one thing I can guarantee you, it riles them. Because they fancy themselves as keepers of the law. They see Jesus as a what? He's a violator of the law. This is the man who does work on the Sabbath. I'm sure that's the way they presented it. They probably didn't usually say, he's the guy who heals people on the Sabbath. He works on the Sabbath. Yeah, he happens to be healing people, showing that he has God's approval, but... He doesn't wash his hands ritualistically in the right way. He doesn't honor the law, this Jesus. Well, here is Jesus standing up and defending every little line in the law of God. And the implication is that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were failing to see Jesus. They were fi- failing to see that Jesus fulfilled the law and epitomized its force. He is the epicenter of the law. They were not keeping the law because they were missing Jesus Christ as its center and as its full example. Really? Well, we don't think that, says the Pharisees. We honor the Sabbath. And we don't eat grain in someone's field or heal anybody on the Sabbath. And we washed our hands the right way. We keep the law. Do you? Perhaps this is why Jesus says what seems to be from left field here in verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery whoa this is tough to figure out how this fits in here but perhaps this is part of it does the grace of Jesus introduce a moral standard a Christian ethic that is less stringent to follow than the law yes Ceremonially, certainly, think of Wednesday nights, you that are reading through that. Has Jesus made your life easier? Wow. A lot easier in one respect. But morally, has Jesus taken the laws of the Old Testament and fulfilled them by saying, you know, God didn't really mean what he said there? It's really not all that harsh and all that difficult. Let's kind of just back off and ease off on this law thing and let me just show you a new way of love and grace. Is that Jesus? What did he do with the law of adultery? You look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Among the religious leaders in Israel, the topic of divorce and remarriage was hotly debated at this time. And it's centered upon Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy 24, particularly in verse 1, Moses refers to a person divorcing his wife. And again, this would have been male divorcing female in this culture. He speaks about divorcing a wife for some indecency found in her. What does that mean? Well, the rabbis had a heyday on that word and on that whole text. What does it mean to find indecency in your wife? As far as we know, every rabbi believed that it meant adultery. That was Shammai in his position, and that's at all that it meant, but adultery. If your mate has committed adultery, you are free to divorce your mate and to remarry another. As far as we know, every rabbi believed that. But then there were rabbis such as Hillel who said if she burns the food you can divorce her. I mean that's a pretty troubling thing for a man to deal with here. You know, she burns your food, you can divorce her and marry somebody else, Hillel says. There's a lot of people that like what he was saying. If she talks against your relatives, if she talks too loud, Hillel kinda had most wives covered there somewhere, didn't he? (laughs) Too loud, burn the food, or talk against my relatives. You can remarry for any of those things. Rabbi Akiba said, if a man found another woman more attractive, he could divorce his wife and marry this other woman. So we have this broad range of debate going on among the rabbis. How many are lining up with Shemay? Shemai, I'll re-say his name. How many are lining up there? Well, a small number. I can divorce only for adultery. But here are the religious leaders of Israel who are saying, you can divorce your wife, basically, if you feel like divorcing your wife. And there's a lot of religious leaders in Jesus' day that are saying, I vote for that. And they had the money to divorce wives and take on other wives who tended to be a good bit younger and a good bit prettier. Akiba. And so Jesus comes into this hornet's nest of people who are seeing marriage and taking it very lightly. Who are seeing it as a small thing and taking it very lightly. And he says, without qualification, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We see Jesus Christ here, I think, as the arbiter of the new ethic. Verse 17 might fit under that heading as well, but certainly verse 18 does as Jesus lays out His teaching in fulfillment of the law. It's a stark, bold, unqualified statement that had to rile the Jewish leadership. And believe me, this is not how any rabbi would put it. Not one of them. When the rabbis discussed the issue, they always led with qualifiers. They started by stating the rules for getting out of a marriage. Jesus did not emphasize the loopholes. He drove hard at the motivations of the heart. Lust, Jesus knew, was behind divorce, as the Pharisees were practicing it in most cases. And so Jesus taught that marriage is to be a permanent bond between a man and a woman. Nothing short of death releases a mate to marry again. The effect is that Jesus accuses these self-righteous Pharisees who pride themselves on meticulously tithing the herbs of their garden and washing their hands ritualistically before every meal These who are a bundle of energy as law keepers, he charges them with the sin of adultery, is what he's doing. They complain that he doesn't eat the right way. They complain, in fact, that when he eats, he eats with sinners. And Jesus says, yes, I do, and you're among them. You commit adultery. Now, let's stop for a moment. That's what we have here in this text. Obviously, there's more to this text or to this issue of divorce and remarriage, and I will not by any means cover this with any uh, great sufficiency here, but I think a few comments are in order if you give me a few moments to strive to grapple with what Jesus teaches and says. Unlike Christ's teaching on divorce and remarriage recorded by Luke and by Mark, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying that one may divorce his or her mate if that mate is guilty of what the Greek word is called pornaia, Matthew 5.32 19.9, whatever that means. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says that a believing man or woman is not bound to their mate if that unbelieving mate leaves, whatever bound means. We have some confusion there at both places in what is the meaning of pornia and what is the meaning of bound. It's not crystal clear in either case. But all other New Testament references to remarriage state only one justification, and that is death. The death of one's mate. In other words, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Chapter 7, and when he writes to the Corinthian church, he mentions no exception for adultery when he writes to the Roman believers, not talking about marriage there, but when he references marriage as an illustration, he does not mention any exception for adultery. When Mark quotes Jesus in chapter 10 and when Luke here quotes Jesus, in each case, remarriage after divorce is considered adultery with no stated exception for marital unfaithfulness. So how do we deal with this? This again boils down into two basic positions. First of all are those that say clearly Jesus is teaching there is no room for divorce ever, other than death. The reason Paul and Mark and Luke never say that divorce and remarriage is justified in cases of adultery is because it is not. It is always wrong to seek a divorce, and it is always adultery to to remarry after a divorce. That is the position. The exception made for porniah in Matthew does not refer to adultery, which is a different Greek word, but refers rather to the time that a Jewish couple was betrothed. If a woman came up, for instance, pregnant during that period of time, the divorce could take place before it was consummated and a man could remarry. So, the interpretation of verse 18 here is if the woman in view has been divorced by an adulterous husband, is she not then free to remarry if, in fact, adultery is cause for divorce? Think of verse 18 in this way. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, in other words, the argument here is that this woman is, hypothetically, the innocent party, yet to marry her is adultery. Position one, no divorce. The second position is that divorce is granted in Scripture in cases of adultery. Here's how that works in this thinking, and this is the big point that you've got to stand on or leave aside. All of the references in the New Testament that do not mention adultery as justification for divorce assume that point. So Paul doesn't say anything to the Corinthians, he doesn't say anything to the Romans, Mark doesn't mention it, Luke doesn't mention it because it's assumed that in the case of adultery a person can remarry. That's a crucial point in this understanding. Secondly, Luke does not record the exception of adultery here in Matthew 16, 18 because Jesus is addressing a divorce that takes place for reasons other than adultery. That goes right along with the fact that he's assuming that adultery is a reason. Matthew uses pornia rather than adultery because he has in view something larger than adultery. Sexual sins of other sorts might classify as a reason for divorce. And as the Mosaic law stipulated capital punishment for adulterers, so Jesus releases the innocent partner from the covenant of marriage today to be remarried. Why, the argument goes, would the adulterer be executed in the Old Testament, but the person living with the adulterer be forced to remain married to them in the New Testament? Now, Let me say that there are good and godly people from any number of theological persuasions that can be found to hold either view. In my training, in my teaching, my closest mentors, my closest friends, my greatest instructors in Old Testament and New Testament are on all sides of this point. I can point to individuals I highly respect and honor who believe either of these positions. So this is not a matter of theological compromise, cannot be limited to that among those who see a cause for divorce. It just simply doesn't work out that way by any means. There are people who hold both positions that are very solid biblically and would believe anything that we would believe from Scripture. There has to be some level of persuasion on this point, on the part and the heart of the individual Christian. I w- don't want to land on this long, but I, I, experience certainly teaches that if you take the view that divorce is appropriate in some situations, the trend today is... I (laughs) I think maybe my battery's out. That's fine. I'll just yell a little louder. Is it back on? All right. This is what we know. And this is not a matter of equivocation. This isn't a matter of goofing around. This is something we've got to come back to in the American church of Jesus Christ. In the most liberal interpretation of Scripture That can possibly be called faithful to God's Word. Divorce is justified only if a mate is living in unrepentant adultery. That is not being held widely by anyone anymore. I shouldn't say anyone, but widely. It's just been disregarded. The Bible says your mate in marriage is living in unrepentant adultery. That is the most liberal Interpretation of the marriage law as Jesus defined it. We have in Christian churches today people doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And nobody probably stands up and says, My wife burned the soup, and so I'm going to divorce her. But I'll tell you, some of the reasons aren't a whole lot deeper. And when it comes to Mr. Acaba, who said, If you find a woman who's more attractive, go ahead. There's a lot of Christians that are justifying divorce on nothing more than that thin point. Or some other rationalization that God will forgive or or the like. And, And he will, in fact, where there's genuine repentance. But we have got to get back to the point that the most liberal, possible, faithful interpretation is unrepentant adultery. That's what Jesus teaches. And I'm not saying that I like that. That's what I believe because I want to. I'm saying that is what the Bible says. And I have talked to people eye to eye who have seen what the Bible says and have said that the Spirit of God's telling them something different. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not the Spirit of God. He doesn't tell us things different than what is written in Scripture. And I know that this creates all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of problems, but the problem lies not in what Christ has said, the problem lies in where our loyalty is and what matters most to us in this world. And living in a culture where self-actualization and self-freedom and pulling yourself up to be in the right and best place you can possibly be in has got more to do with the way many Christians think today than what Jesus said. What Jesus said matters, and we need to submit to it and honor it. The most liberal interpretation is unrepentant adultery within marriage. Your mate committing adultery with someone and refusing to repent. Why do I say that? Luke chapter 17, Jesus will teach us what we are supposed to do when someone repents. It's forgive. And if we forgive, then we release them from the guilt of their wrong. And I think that that would lead then to say that we should remain within marriage and grant forgiveness, and by God's grace, the church surrounds and brings strength to that marriage. But divorce, for any other reason, means that a subsequent remarriage falls under the category of adultery. In other words, you are still responsible to your mate in God's eyes. It's a tough matter. And I know that it hits people in a lot of different ways. And we exalt and rejoice in the forgiveness of God. And I say that with great meaning. It's just not the issue here before us today. God can forgive, he can bring spiritual healing and strength when we have failed. But what does matter ultimately? This isn't given to us, is it, this verse to say here's everything you need to know about marriage and divorce. It's not why it's here. Why is it here? Because the ethic of Jesus Christ demands that we orient our life to what He thinks. That isn't natural for sinners. To orient your life to what he thinks that means what for us as we come to this place what is not this is not an intellectual debate so much as to whether marriage uh, divorce and remarriage is right or divorce and remarriage is always wrong it really comes down to those of you who are not married whoever you are, as young as you are, whoever you are, those of you who are unmarried, you need to realize that the ethic of Jesus Christ, His moral command, needs to guide the way that you think about marriage. You need to perceive marriage as a relationship that you enter for life. Don't look at it any other way. Don't perceive it As something to get out of. God's Word is clear. There is to be no sexual relationship outside of the bond of marriage, and once that bond has been established, you are to stay in that relationship. That's His norm. That's the thinking of Christ. It means we're going to have to think quite differently if we are in a troubled situation. And I know horror stories that would bring chills to you if I told you what happens between some married couples and the horrible situations people find themselves in. But those of you who are unmarried, you need to know that when I take a vow at a wedding, it is for life. That's Jesus' thinking, and I've got to orient my moral character and standing and practice to him and what he thinks. And for those that are married, in fact, for those that have been remarried, and there has been a divorce, perhaps there's been adultery, perhaps there has not been adultery. Perhaps you know in your heart that you have violated the law of God and the will of Jesus Christ in this area in your life. Here's his will now. Stay married to the person to whom you're married. If he's giving you a second mate, or wherever you are in the number. Stay married. That is his desire. It is not to break apart what God has put together, but it is to bind it together until death separates. So even for those who find this a hard topic, Because you're on a second marriage, know that there is also hope here as you focus on where you are now. That is to stay married and to stay sexually faithful to your mate. And I thank God to say that. Not because I'm saying anything new to anybody here probably but because that's not what message we hear day after day after day in this culture. Stay oriented to your mate. Love him. Love her. Honor him. Honor her. Remain sexually faithful to that individual for life. That is God's will. And if we orient our life to Jesus, that's how we will live. So we see in these very strange verses the smattering of statements that Jesus is the initiator of the new age which builds off of and fulfills the old age and Jesus is the arbiter then of the new ethic which enhances and deepens the law of Moses. And the key and the center of it for us is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate point of orientation in the universe in the course of salvation history and in your life. Everything that has taken place, everything that's been created in this physical world, everything that's taken place in the course of history points forward to Jesus or backward to Jesus, and that is exactly how your life and my life should be oriented. Jesus Christ is the point of reference. He is the center, and as He is, our world oriented toward Him That will change the way we live. The followers of Jesus Christ were seen by the Pharisees as followers of Jesus Christ. You remember that? They took note that these men had been with Jesus. It means that if you are oriented to Jesus Christ, you will do business differently. You will be a different kind of neighbor. You will be a different kind of school student. You will be a different kind of mate. And you will use time and money and abilities in a different way. You will be a follower of Jesus Christ. Is your life oriented toward Him? Is He the one who decides what is right and wrong for you? Do you see him as the center of everything? Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we pray that you will work in our lives and hearts to respond as we should the instruction of Jesus with as little as we understand, may we respond to what is here. I pray for the marriages of our church and I ask that you will strengthen them. Whatever has happened in the past, we have the privilege right now to stop and look at what is. And I pray that you will do a work in the heart of the men of this church to be loving leaders who are Christ-like in the leadership of their families, who take initiative And plan and lay out vision and love Jesus with all their heart and treat women the way you meant for them to be treated. And I pray for our wives that they, along with their husbands, would despise adulterous thoughts. And would be faithful to their husbands to support and help and honor and lead their children to godliness. I pray for our families. I pray, Lord God, for each of us in the various areas of life. And perhaps your spirit has touched on a very significant point in someone's life. I pray, God, that Jesus would, in fact, be the center and the orientation point for our lives, for he is that, whether we acknowledge it or not. Please, Lord, may he be the one who determines how we live. Help us to this end. Do a work spiritually among us, I pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.